Blog Talk Radio. Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. They Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Music Laws Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Music Laws Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. Now it's time for Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be here with you this week. Thanks very much for listening. We really appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. Remember to check out our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. And let your friends know about the show and that they can listen to our podcast on iTunes at www.blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. On Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and myself, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and cover legal current events. Today, we're going to analyze five news stories, and then after that, if we have some time, we'll do Reed's rant and wrap things up from there. Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice. Now, the first story of the week is about how California is outlawing immigration evidence in injury lawsuits. This is important because sometimes tortfeasors, that's the person that causes the injury, they try to get away with it and not having to be responsible for the injuries they cause by claiming that uh, some victim of theirs, if they're not in the country legally, they're not entitled to full damages. They're only entitled to what damages they would get in their own country, and that's really not fair. So, Mark, tell us about this uh, new law that was just signed. I think Robert's handling that. That's right. Oh, Robert, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Robert. All right. No problem. Okay. So Governor Brown signed into law this week uh, Assembly Bill 2159, which bars evidence of immigration status in wrongful death and personal injury cases. Now, why is this important? Well, if somebody's hurt in an accident, one of the damages, one element of the damages they can claim is uh, future lost earnings or past lost earnings, meaning if they couldn't work as a result of their injuries, they could claim the amount they lost uh, has damages. Or if because of their injuries they could not work in the future, they could make a claim for that amount as well. There was a California appellate decision back in 1986 uh, that talked about what was the standard for evaluating how much loss of earnings an injured uh, party could claim. Should it be based on how much they could earn in their own country or how much they could earn in the United States? And if they were illegally in the United States and weren't legally permitted to work, perhaps the standard should be their home country since they were subject to deportation, and that would be a more accurate measure of the damages they suffered. Now, this had a very interesting chilling effect on loss of earnings claims in plaintiff's personal injury cases. One can imagine sitting in a deposition when the injured party is under oath on the record and is asked, is he in the country illegally? What is his immigration status? Very few people injured in accidents and 
participating in a lawsuit as a result are willing to undergo that and thereby be forced to testify on the record under oath that they are in the country illegally. Many of these people are paranoid already about interactions with the authorities. And so the case seemed to suggest that if you were going to make a loss of earnings claim and you were in the country illegally, you had to disclose your immigration status. And this was reaffirmed in some subsequent cases as recently as 2015. So uh, now this new law that Governor Brown has, has signed is going to eliminate any reference to immigration status in any personal injury or wrongful death lawsuit. So I would imagine that, therefore, it would not be what lawyers call discoverable, meaning that the injured party would not have to disclose to the defense or the defense's attorneys uh, what his immigration status in is in order to be able to make his loss of earnings claim. So I think that's really important because I could see some unethical lawyers uh, trying to basically blackmail the poor plaintiff and say, listen, you want to bring your claim and get your rightful comp- compensation, uh, we're going to get you deported. <laughs> we're going to, that's, we're going to that's exactly your, right. It, had a very, it was know. a very intimidating thing. I, I can recall sitting in depositions uh, back around the time that 1986 decision first came down, and you would, you would see that the, this poor injured party would be subject to this really aggressive questioning concerning the circumstances under which they came to the United States and how did they get here and their interactions with immigration authorities. And it would be very intimidating and it would be very humiliating. And so any, the only way out of it was for the injured party to say, okay, I'm not going to make any loss of earnings claim even if they had been seriously injured and that injury had prevented their ability to work such that they did lose that income and under the law were entitled to recover it. So it was kind of a boon to the defense and to the insurance companies because a big measure of the damages that these people could recover now was out of the lawsuit. And then plus it kind of had a chilling effect on people making claims in the first place because they were now nervous about whether they would be cross-examined about how they got to the country or what their legal right to reside in this country uh, actually was. Well, I have to congratulate Governor Jerry Brown for signing that, and I'm not sure which uh, member of our Congress proposed it, but I think that's a great law, and I, I think it just levels the playing field, and some big insurance company with all the money in the world should not be intimidating and blackmailing you know, an undocumented worker just because he's here. You know, That's not right. Uh, all right, let's move on to Mark's story. The next story is uh, about a California company, couple suing PetSmart because they brought their dog in to be groomed, and apparently the the person doing the grooming at PetSmart made a mistake and killed the dog. Uh, what a nightmare. And, and apparently they, they saw the dog basically killed in front of their eyes. Mark, what happened? Yeah, well, it wasn't a mistake, Reed. Um, first of all, Pet grooming is an unrelated, uh, unregulated business, and it requires no licensing. And uh, a PETA spokesman says that they get complaints all the time from people who say their pets are either injured or even killed during grooming at PetSmart or Petco. Um, so this couple had a dachshund named Henry, and he died this past May, um, and they've now filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the retailer, Pet, you know, PetSmart, and against the groomer individually not for money, they say, but for systemic changes. They want these people to be trained. And uh, as you said, they watched their dog die before their eyes. They took the dog in just to have his nails trimmed. And the next thing you know, the, right. the groomer comes out and says there's an emergency, 
and the dog's bleeding from its mouth right in front of him. Um, now, according to the police, the groomer, which is a guy by the name of uh, Juan Zarate, who's 38 years old, he came out, presented the dog, and uh, they, they got a veterinarian to try to revive the dog, but they were unable to do that. And what later happened? Was well, it was determined the dog had two broken bones and a punctured lung um, and that he was strangled. So I don't know what, why this guy felt he needed to manhandle this dog to the point of breaking two ribs, puncturing his lung, and then strangling him. But I sure hope justice prevails in this case. And uh, the wow, couple, that's horrendous. Did he get charged criminally? I mean, I, I remember Michael Vick got charged criminally for animal, animal cruelty. I mean, we've got laws against that. Yeah, he's been charged with felony animal cruelty for his oh, deliberate good. actions, and uh, he's pleaded not guilty. He's posted bail, and he's waiting a trial, which I think is supposed to be next month or something. Now, um, you raised an interesting uh, point there, Mark. They're not suing for money. But if they were suing for money, my understanding is the law only allows for a somewhat limited recovery for the death of a right. pet. Is that, is that well, accurate? It's nothing. Let's talk about that. There's two, there's two ways. If, if it's determined that someone was negligent, and causing harm or death to a dog, you can't. The owners cannot recover uh, emotional distress damages. However, there's a case that came out a couple of years oh. back that allows for recovery of emotional distress if there's a willful injury uh, or death to the animal. So there's the distinction. That's so interesting. In but case, would, the, would, would the employer be liable for those type of damages? A lot of times, sometimes they 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 make it so that the employer is liable for negligent conduct of its employees, but not intentional and criminal conduct. Isn't there some limit? Well, that's, that's true. That, 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 I'm sure that would be the argument that PetSmart's going to make, that they're not responsible for the intentional killing of this dog. But, you know, it was in the course and scope of him, of, you know, they, they went there to have the dog's nails clipped, and it happened during that transaction, so to speak. So I would think that the company's going to be on the hook no matter what here. And, and the damages, though, are just like the value of the dog, though, right? Like what it would cost to buy yeah. a new dog or what that dog may have cost? Is that how well, it works? Well, no. As, as I said, if it's a willful injury, they can recover emotional distress damages. But what these oh. people are looking for, they want they want these people to be trained better, and uh, they want systemic changes, whatever those systemic changes might be. Hmm. So I remember a long time ago, um, this is going back, you know, 30 years, it was uh, – December 1986, actually, and I had a cat that I just loved, beloved cat, and uh, I had fed him pet food from a national brand, I think it was Purina, and it was it, it was poisoned. It was just tainted food, and it blew up my cat's kidneys, and he ultimately died um, from this poisoning. And I looked into going after Purina. I was just beside myself and at the time you know the the you know all you can get for the cat is like 10 bucks i mean he was a cat that i rescued he was you know it has no value and the law just didn't allow for any kind of real damages it, it doesn't take into effect the account the fact that you love these pets like they're children and you suffer and you have anguish and you cry and and you, you, there's nothing for that it was it was a terrible. I mean, I'm thinking about it 30 years ago. I mean, 30 years later, I still suffer from that loss. Right until we, until uh, we had really this case sad. come down a couple of years ago, dogs and cats and other animals were considered chattel, just property. Yeah, that's why. Well, I'm, that's interesting. I like that case, and I, I I guess still, if it's negligent, they nobody's going to bring anything. There's no 
there's no monetary value to it. Um, but if you, I guess you could, if you, if you could show willful conduct and you can get emotional distress damages, you know, maybe, but even then emotional distress damages are, I don't, I don't anticipate people are going to be going to therapy and, uh, losing work and sleep and everything for very long. Um, but I'm glad it's going in the right direction. I'm an animal animal rights freak, and I think we should always be protecting our little furry loved ones. Um, all right, so you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. If you just joined us, welcome. And we're going to move on to our next story, which is a story about Allstate having to pay $600,000 for those TV ads that they were running that said you can have accident forgiveness. They won't raise your rates. Um, apparently that, that was false advertising and a bunch of attorney district attorney's offices went after uh, a couple of insurance companies, Allstate being one of them, and they've agreed to settle. Uh, tell me what the story is on that. That's Robert, right? That's right. Uh, here we go. You know, we've seen all of these ads because these, these automobile insurance companies, they're just really competing against each other like uh, – cat eat dog here or dog eat cat or whatever um where you look at these ads and they always have some person they say oh you know i love this car and then i made one little mistake and i crashed it up and then my insurance company automatically raised my rates and then some some friendly person steps into the scene and says oh how about accident forgiveness and several companies have run this type of advertising basically telling people that their first accident will not result in an increase in premium even if the accident was their fault okay now the problem with that is is that that's illegal in California in California California consumers in 1988 passed proposition 103 and that was designed to eliminate a practice called redlining uh, we probably don't remember it now, but there was a time when your automobile liability insurance rate, rates were calculated primarily based on where you lived. So somebody who lived in a relatively low crime, low accident area like Beverly Hills would pay one rate. Somebody 10 miles away over in South L.A. would pay a completely different rate and a rate much higher. So Prop 103 eliminated all of that. Um, but unfortunately, these insurance companies have been advertising this accident forgiveness and when the when the commercials are aired in California, sometimes I, I watch these very carefully because I'm always looking to see what type of disclaimer. And generally, they flash a little tiny disclaimer in tiny, tiny print across the bottom of the screen that might say program not available in California or some other kind of vague thing that might give you an idea that what you're listening to is not actually capable of being bought here in California by a California consumer. Um, so, yeah, the district attorneys of Riverside, San Diego, and Los Angeles counties got together, and they filed lawsuits under California's unfair competition and false advertising statutes, saying that promoting this in this fashion and not really telling people you couldn't buy it in California was misleading. And uh, we had a story last month, if you may recall, involving uh, Liberty Mutual, where Liberty Mutual would, had agreed to settle lawsuits, the same kind of lawsuits arising from the right. same type of commercials uh, for 925000 And so now we have Allstate, you know, thrown in the towel on the same lawsuits that were filed against it, paying $600,000 and agreeing that if they are going to air these types of ads, they're going to make it more clear and more explicit that, hey, these types of programs and these types of benefits are not available to California consumers. You know, I think it's ridiculous. They should just not run those ads in California. And these 
everybody knows these disclaimers that you see on television commercials are totally form over substance. Nobody can read those things. They're in such fine print, and a lot of times they put it in light gray text, so you can't even read it. I've actually been interested in that sometimes. And I'll, if I TiVo a program, I'll put pause on and I'll walk up to the TV and I'll try and figure out what it says. And even then, most of the time, it's really hard to even figure out what it's saying. Uh, so I, I can't imagine that those those disclosures sh- should not be given any credit at all. If they're required to make those disclosures, they should be held to have violated the law unless they make the disclosure in such a way that it's meaningful, that a person really hears it or understands it or has the capability of understanding it. But, well, uh, if the disclosure no, no. was like that, that would completely undermine the point of the commercial. I mean, I, I agree with you, Reed. It's like these disclosure are almost they're designed and they're presented in a way that nobody even pays any attention to them. And the over, sure. overarching message of the commercial comes through unfiltered uh, and unedited. And right. you know, the whole idea of the disclosure is it, it's kind of an absurdity because we people we know people don't don't react to it or even process it. Right. And and to to run those commercials here in California where the basic the basic whole premise of the commercial itself is not available in California they shouldn't be permitted to run it in California because what they're doing is they're they're putting something out there and it gets the attention of people i remember seeing these commercials and thinking oh well that'd be pretty cool um it gets somebody's attention and for those people that are thinking of changing insurance companies or that are interested in that thing they'll call the insurance company and yeah maybe you know, seven out of ten people who call will will they'll 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 tell each of the people, oh well, we can't offer that program in California. But while they have them on the on the line, they'll upsell them and they'll say, but we've got this great program or we got that great great program. So the insurance company is benefiting by putting something false in front of people, and they get the benefit of having those people call and basically subject themselves to a sales pitch for something else. It's like a bait and switch. So and really that's exactly that attorney is going after that's, that's exactly the argument the district attorneys of those three counties were making, and I think that uh, those arguments were going to be successful in those lawsuits, which is why these insurance companies decided to settle. And there's some more insurance. There's some more insurance companies that are subject to the same types of lawsuits, and it'll be interesting to see what they decide to do in light of these two big uh, companies uh, trying to make peace with the district attorneys. Oh, they're all going to cave for sure. They're all going to say, oh, it's just a question of what the number is. All right, let's move on to Mark's story. The California State Bar is considering banning lawyers from having sex with their clients. Now, to me, that's pretty surprising because I actually went through this a long time ago. Uh, Just after law school, I was really surprised that one of my law school buddies was dating one of his clients. And I said, oh, my God, you can't do that. And he says, yes, you can. And so I researched it out, and sure enough, he was right. (laughs) It just seems like it, it makes it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, every I would expect that it's not okay for a lawyer to have sex with a lawyer's client because there's too much potential for the lawyer taking advantage of the sexual relationship or, or taking advantage of the legal relationship in order to convince his client to have sex. So I was I'm I'm, I'm surprised it's been around all this time, and I'm I'm happy to see that it that it looks like the uh, California State Bar might join the same policy that most other states have in, in forbidding that. Um, so, Mark, tell us, tell us about uh, what's going on with this. Well, as you stated, under the current rules, the California State Bar, uh, the rules do allow sex between clients 
and, and their lawyer, um, so long as the lawyer does not, quote, employ coercion, intimidation, or undue influence, or perform legal services incompetently as a result of the sexual relationship. So that's the little caveat that currently exists. Right. So, so for the first Very time since night, yeah. So for the first time since 1987, the California State Bar is considering a flat-out ban on sex between lawyers and the people they represent, with exceptions for sexual relationships that existed before the person became a client, and obviously for spouses. Um, the new rule is based on a model by the American Bar Association, and as you mentioned, it exists in many other states across the country. So a lot of lawyers, you know, they, they oppose um, this. Go ahead. Well, you know, I, 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 I disagree, Reed. You know, I think this, this stems from a very paternalistic attitude. I recall when this, this law or this regulation first came into existence um, a couple of decades ago with the exceptions that Mark has just outlined. And I recall the mm-hmm. state lawmaker talking about how she was concerned about uh, females undergoing divorce proceedings, being taken advantage of by, by male lawyers. The profession was, you know, overwhelmingly male, you know, uh, two or three decades ago, and that somehow, you know, these, these frail, you know, divorcees would be manipulated and taken advantage of by these like, slickster lawyers, and they needed the protection of a law that could prevent them from being sexually exploited. And I, I remember thinking at the time that it was, there was two things wrong with that. The first thing I thought was, how insulting, really, to females to say that you needed to pass a regulation to prevent them from somehow being, you know, emotionally manipulated or coerced into a sexual relationship by their lawyer. Um, it just seemed like a very paternalistic kind of kind of old-fashioned throwback that portrayed females as being some sort of like sensitive, fragile flowers that that needed protection from these 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 mean men. The other thing I that that irritated the hell out of me when I first heard about this is, you know, I can't think of any other profession where there's some regulation of sexual conduct. You know, I mean, do they tell electricians or plumbers that when they go to the house there and they clean the drain that, you know, if the housewife is willing, they can't have sex with them? I mean, it seems just like like an odd thing and an odd thing to focus on. And the fact that I'm now hearing that there's actually a model rule. I mean, what do those people have to do over there at the ABA that they sit around dreaming up model rules concerning the sexual (laughs) conduct and the private sexual interaction of adults? It just seems to me to be a bit of a reach, and and, and that's kind of my view of it. It just seems to be an over-regulatory, over-paternalistic, overarching, overreaching, like nanny state kind of intrusion, and and, uh, I'm against it. Let me, let me tell you what the California Bar Ethics Commission, this, this is what their statement says as to why they're, they're, they're in favor of this. Commission believes that California's current rule renders it difficult to prove a violation in the typical circumstance of consensual sexual relations. For example, where consensual sexual relations occur, the state bar must prove that the relations cause the lawyer to perform legal services incompetently, which imposes a complexity that is likely frustrating enforcement. In addition, other professions, such as psychotherapists, have stricter rules that are more protective. By comparison with the restrictions in those professions, retaining the current rule could diminish public confidence in the legal profession. Robert, I kind of agree with you. Let me tell you why. Um, Between September of 92 and January of 2010, so about 18 or 19 years, the state bar investigated 205 complaints of misconduct under the current sex restriction. And out of those 205, it imposed discipline one time. So I'm wondering why this whole issue has even come about all of a sudden, because 
it, you know, 205 complaints in 18 years, which is about 11 complaints a year, when we have about 190,000 lawyers in California. I don't see why this is a pressing issue that this should be changed at this point. So that's my that's my view. I find it interesting. I, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't think it's a huge issue either way. Um, but I do think that there is the potential for abuse. I could see, you know, some lawyer saying to, you know, we were talking about undocumented uh, people. I could see some lawyer uh, saying to his undocumented, you know, client, uh, hey, I'm going to quit and uh, withdraw as counsel unless you have sex with me or something like that. And obviously that would be that would be an ethical violation. I think that they can come up with other violations, but I, I could see some unethical lawyers taking advantage of a situation like that. But uh, again, I don't think it's a big issue because look, just like what you said, you know, 200 cases in 18 years, not a lot of cases. And by the um, way, the, there's going to be they're, they're proposing 68 new rules of conduct for lawyers that it's going to be coming out in March. So 68. 68. So stay tuned. Yeah. Oh boy. Right. Oh, that's oh wonderful. Boy. You know, those people up there. You know, getting the getting the dues that we all have to pay them, so they can sit around and dream up new things, new new solutions for problems that don't exist. That's exactly. what it sounds like to me. Yeah. All right. You're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. We're going to go to our last story, and this is a story. Um, there was a 26 million dollar award in the fatal injury of a Manhattan Beach teen on a tour tour bus um tell us what happened with that well this is a sad story this relates to the death two years ago of mason zazette a miracosta uh high school student who was on a star lines double decker tour bus um celebrating a sweet 16 party of a classmate uh the bus was driving down the 405 freeway uh in inglewood and uh the, he was on the second uh on the double on the top deck, which doesn't have a roof, and uh, was standing on an 18-inch riser, which he was a relatively tall kid. I think he was almost six feet, which uh, placed them like higher than the sides of the bus. And when the bus passed under a pedestrian overpass at Spruce Street, uh, he hit the back of his head. Just a glancing blow hit maybe the top two inches of his head to uh, on the uh, pedestrian bridge and uh, was rendered unconscious, and it turned out he suffered a traumatic brain injury, serious enough such that two days later he was taking off uh, life support and uh, died. Oh, my God, what a nightmare. It is a nightmare. And I understand so, he was a great kid and, you know, good grades, and well, just, uh, 1,800 people attended his funeral. I mean, it's It's interesting, you know, because uh, – it, you know, he was the only one who was struck because he was facing, he had his back to the front of the bus, so he did not see the bridge approaching. And the bus had already passed under some other overpasses where everybody had to duck down. Um, oh, wow. But, but the, the defense of the bus company, uh, which was assigned 70% of the liability for this, 25% being assigned to the parents of the girl whose party it was, and 5% to, uh, to wow. Mason himself, was that they were all drunk. Um, it turned out that Mason had consumed three beers before he boarded the bus and that he had a flask of fireball whiskey that he was drinking while he was on the bus. And that this is the part that shocked me, that the mother of the girl whose uh, party it was had passed out six flasks of vodka. 
and told oh her to spread them around the kids. And so they were all, they were play, started playing music, and the kids all went up to the top deck and started hooting and hollering and, and shouting and screaming and dancing. And, uh, and this is the tragedy that happened. Wow, what a nightmare. You know, that's a lesson to parents out there. You do not hand out alcohol to underage people. You can be held responsible for that. She's responsible for 25%. That parent is responsible for 25% of $26 million. I hope that yeah. insurance covers it. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because, you know, the, 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 the bus company, the defense was, yeah, they were all drunk. It's not our fault. But the, some testimony that was really damning to the bus company's position involved a prior incident that occurred a year earlier where a woman on one of these buses um, – again, up on the upper deck, uh, was hit in the eye by a tree branch as the bus passed under a residential, in a residential neighborhood under some trees, and she fractured her eye socket. And despite this incident, Starlines did nothing to do to change any of its practices and procedures. But as a result of this accident, they have warning signs now that instruct all of the patrons on the upper deck to remain seated with their seatbelts on, uh, they have security guards now that are stationed on the upper deck to make sure that people there keep their hands inside and they don't stand up. And also, uh, there's no alcohol allowed any longer on any Starlines bus, no matter the circumstances. You know what? That That is one of the reasons why we are engaged in such a noble profession in the personal injury world. We bring We bring these cases to seek justice and compensation from our clients, but also to seek change. And But for this, these, this case, maybe Starlines wouldn't have made that change, and maybe more people would be injured in the future. So kudos to them. We're going to have to move on. We're out of time for today. We don't even have time for Reed's rant. So I thank everybody for listening, and we look forward to, to being with you again next week. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.